You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. Love is that obedience to the commandment of Christ. When you love, you're obedient. When you're obedient to Christ, you assure your own heart you're genuinely saved. Don't go on feelings. Well, I had a feeling when I asked Christ in my heart. Or what someone said, because you've prayed this prayer and signed this little thing, keep this in your Bible all the time and you'll know that you're always saved. That only goes so far, people. Obedience to Christ's commands, especially the command to love because he emphasized it, is the personal evidence which proves to others, maybe more importantly to your own conscience, that you're saved. In a world full of churches with different rules, it can be hard to know if you're truly saved. Does baptism save you? Are you saved by a certain prayer? Does a denomination get the final say? Today, Pastor Tom shares some practical ways you can know if you're truly saved. Are you obedient to Christ? Do you love as Christ loved? Is your faith active? When you see God begin to change you inwardly, that's when you know you're truly saved, and only Jesus can make those changes. Now here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 2 as he continues his message, Is Your Faith Dead or Living? This faith must be a living faith that endeavors to live according to God's word in gratitude for salvation. If works are not present, our faith is dead, James 2.26. And a dead faith, because it is ineffectual, is really no faith at all. A dead faith is really no faith at all because a dead faith can in no way lay hold of the perfect righteousness of Christ. We must have a living faith evidenced by works of love and mercy toward other people, end quote. It's exactly what we've been teaching here. In the Dallas Seminary Journal, Bibsack, from 1954, a man named Roy Aldrich writes this, it is evident that there is faith and faith, and he puts that in capital letters, There is nominal faith and real faith. There is intellectual faith and heart faith. There is sensual faith and there is spiritual faith. There is dead faith and there is vital faith. There is traditional faith which may fall short of transforming personal faith. There is a faith that may be commended as orthodox and yet have no more saving value than the faith of demons. We're going to see we're going to get to that. What is saving faith? It must go beyond intellectual assent and include an act of the will, your will, that is. It means trust and committal. It means resting and depending entirely on Christ for salvation, end quote. So in other words, why am I saved? Is it 50% because of what I do and 50% of Christ? That's a false gospel. Would you agree? How about me? Do I get 30% and Christ does 70%? Oh, how humble I am. 25%? 10, finally we're bargaining with God. How about, I know, I know, I've got to give 1% of my efforts and then God will take care of 99%. Is that the Christian gospel? No, it's not. We don't add any of our righteousness or works to the mix at all. It's all the righteousness of Christ or there's no deal with God. All right, seventh, dead faith can't be demonstrated. Verse 18, dead faith can't be demonstrated. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Some scholars have called this verse one of the hardest passages in the New Testament to unravel. The overall intent of James, fortunately, is fairly clear, but there's a huge problem in understanding exactly what James was doing with this quote. Translators disagree on it tremendously. Who is being quoted, first of all? Is it a friend of James, someone on his side, or an antagonist to James, someone debating with him? 
How far does the quote go? They're amazing how many different cutoff places the quote goes because in the original Greek, there are no punctuation marks like that. And what the position the debater has in relation to James is not clear either. The issues are many. They're tightly intertwined. There's no obvious solution. And I'm not going to bore you with a lot of the details. Frankly, it's confusing. I kind of, as I went through this, realized that everyone has to eat a little bit of interpretive humble pie here in, in dealing with this. So in a very undogmatic way, I'm going to say that I agree with the scholars who suggest that James is using an advocate of his position to boost his argument. Whether that's clear or not, fortunately what is clear, no matter how far the quote goes or who is saying it, is this. True faith can only be shown by works. We show our faith, which is invisible, by our works which are visible. Conversely, faith which has no works, we can't even see if it's there, so the only way we would have to evaluate it is a work. Of course, behind this is the assumption that everyone knows faith, though it is real, is a metaphysical reality. You can't scientifically investigate whether somebody has faith or not. Can't put it in a test tube. Can't try to figure it out that way. What is the way we would figure out they have faith? Answer again is their works, the works that flow from faith. We cannot have confidence somebody is saved because... They say they're a Christian. You know, it's debated the politics. You know, don't you believe so-and-so is a Christian or so-and-so is a Christian? If we mean in the nominal sense that they would check off and say they're a Christian, fine. But if we mean in the true sense, the only way to know that is to know the person well and to know their personal life well, to be able to say whether they're a Christian or not. Just because someone claims to be a Christian, in fact, I usually tend to doubt the claims that are made in either in the political world or in the world of Hollywood or singers or whatever. Someone says they're a Christian. I'm kind of like, uh-huh, you know, right. Because being a Christian has been spread so thin, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in that. I hope you don't either. They have to show it by works. Christ said, all men will know you are my disciples if you claim to have faith in me. Is that what he said? If you have what? Love for one another. The only way anyone is going to know you're one of my disciples, you're a believer in me, is let's see the love. The demonstration of your faith is not only important to other people, it's also important to you. Did you know that? Did you know that in your heart, when you're wondering, am I saved? When you're wondering and you're concerned with the assurance of salvation, you're going to increase your assurance that you are personally saved when you see in your own life that fruit of love coming out. If you look at yourself and you, you, you know the duties of the Christian life, you're coming to church, you're doing what you ought to do, but you don't see a heart of affection toward other people and compassion toward other people with what they're going through. You don't want to help them in their need. You don't have mercy coming from, and that goes on for weeks and months. What's going to start to happen in your own heart is you're going to doubt that you're saved, and you ought to. See, the Bible has magnificent promises for believers. We could go through many of them, we don't have time. If you believe, you have eternal life. Many promises, that's on the page of Scripture, and you could say, I agree with that. Everyone who believes in Christ is forgiven of all their sins, and they have heaven that's coming, and they have a new birth, and they have a great relationship with God, and they're redeemed, and they're justified, and you go on and on with all of it. But the question still remains, am I one of the believers, right? Now, to a certain degree, you have to know that because faith itself has a measure of confidence to it. When you go to Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, you know, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So there's a measure of assurance and confidence in your faith itself that kind of leads you along to say, yes, I'm a believer. How do you know I'm a believer? Because I know I believe. But in the midst of all of that, there's some doubt that creeps in when you look at your life and say, well, wait a minute now. I'm not 100% sure that I believe. Did I? 
And so sometimes people look backwards and they say, oh yeah, I remember I was at the Billy Graham crusade and I came forward and they prayed for me and I said a very nice prayer. Does that really give you assurance? Well, no, I was at a Pentecostal church and they, have, they were really going and swaying back and forth and they called up front and I know the spirit was working that day and then something happened to me and I know because of that experience I'm saved. Really? I don't mean to burst your bubble here today, people. Yeah, but grandma so-and-so, when I was, you know, seven years old, pray with me. And I know that I've been saved since that prayer. Don't you dare insult grandma so-and-so. Okay, okay. I hope that's not where you gain your confidence that you're a believer. You say, well, where are you supposed to gain it? Well, 1 John 3, if you have love, you will assure your heart before God. Your heart will be assured. And whatever your heart condemns you, God knows all things and is greater than your heart. Look, if your own conscience is bearing testimony against you and your spirit that you are not a loving person, God who knows more certainly knows you're not that way also. How are you going to reassure your own conscience that you're born again and say, answer, love. Love is inseparable from faith. Love is that obedience to the commandment of Christ. When you love, you're obedient. When you're obedient to Christ, you assure your own heart you're genuinely saved. Don't go on feelings. Well, I had a feeling when I asked Christ in my heart or what someone said, because you've prayed this prayer and signed this little thing, keep this in your Bible all the time and you'll know that you're always saved. That only goes so far, people. Obedience to Christ's commands, especially the command to love because he emphasized it, is the personal evidence which proves to others, maybe more importantly to your own conscience, that you're saved. When you see God changing your desires, your affections inwardly, in the very way you think, the things you love change. It starts spilling out into fruit of love towards other people. That's undeniable. Dr. MacArthur has a book called Saved Without a Doubt. I actually recommended it to someone recently, and then I decided to pick it up and look at it. And he has an extended quote about Jonathan Edwards and the Great American Awakening. I want to read this to you. It's a little bit longer than I usually do, but I want to just read this to you. It's very fascinating. I think it'll be personally helpful to you. In 1646, he writes, about six years after the Great Awakening, in which Jonathan Edwards was the primary instrument of God to preach the gospel and bring about the greatest revival in American history thus far, Edwards wrote a treatise concerning the religious affections, love affections. He wrote it to deal with a problem not unlike one we face today, the matter of evidence for true conversion. Many people want the blessings of salvation, especially eternal security, but no more. In the explosive drama of the Great Awakening, it seemed as though conversions were occurring in great numbers. However, it didn't take long to realize that some people claimed conversions that were not real. While various excesses and heightened emotional experiences were common, scores of people didn't demonstrate any evidence in their lives to verify their claim to know and love Jesus Christ, which led critics to attack the Great Awakening, contending it was nothing but a big emotional bath without any true conversions. Thus, partly in defense of true conversion and partly to expose false conversion, Jonathan Edwards took up his pen. He came to this simple conclusion. The supreme proof of a true conversion is what he called holy affections, which is a zeal for holy things and a longing after God and personal holiness. He made a careful distinction between saving versus common operations of the Holy Spirit. Saving operations obviously produce salvation. Common operations of the Holy Spirit, he said, quote, may sober, arrest, and convict men, and may even bring them to what at first appears to be repentance and faith, yet these influences fall short of inward saving renewal. 
end quote of Jonathan Edwards, continuing the quote with Dr. MacArthur. How can you tell whether the Holy Spirit has performed a saving operation? As the principal evidence of life is motion, Edwards wrote, so the principal evidence of saving grace is holy living. He said, true salvation always produces an abiding change of nature in a true convert. Therefore, whenever holiness of life does not accompany a confession of conversion, it must be understood that this individual is not a Christian. In the very year Edwards' treatise was published, popular teaching asserted that to the contrary, the only real evidence of true salvation is a feeling based on an experience, usually the experience at the moment of the alleged conversion. That teaching introduces the prevalent but erroneous concept that a person's true spiritual state is known by a past experience rather than a present pursuit of holiness. Edwards flatly contradicted that notion, quoting Edwards again, assurance is never to be enjoyed on the basis of a past experience. There is need of the present and continuing work of the Holy Spirit in giving assurance, end quote. With that, our elders wholeheartedly agree. That is why when people come for a baptism or they come for a membership interview, and we're trying to do our best, being very fallible men. We don't know the heart as God does, so we can't ever make a final judgment about anyone's salvation. We can only make a functional judgment. And when they come to us and they tell us the story of salvation, we're all very much less impressed with how someone actually came to salvation and all the interesting story that happened to do with that, whether it's dramatic or whether it's just kind of boring. doesn't matter. What matters is, and so how has this faith change your life. Then the ears get big. Elders' ears get big. And we listen. And we ask follow-up questions to see if we can discern that your affections were changed. The direction of your life was changed. Love comes from your life. You see what I'm saying? You get that? So important. That's so important. Some of you like, yeah, I don't have a very good testimony. You know, all that happened is I grew up in a Christian home and mommy talked to me. A Sunday school teacher talked to me. Dad sat me on his knee, and I guess I think I was a believer from like age four or five. Okay, that's a great testimony. That's a testimony of a faithful Christian home doing what they ought to be doing. Amen? Amen. But what we want to know is when you turn 7, 8, 12, 14, 18, 21, did you follow Christ? Did you follow Christ? Everybody has their moments. Don't get me wrong. Everybody's got their moments. We've got bad moments. We do bad things. This is not perfectly following. By no means is it. There's plenty of sin in the life of a believer. But was the whole direction of your life changed or was it not? And that is how you tell whether you're saved. All right, I got to go more quickly here. The eighth description, dead faith results in dead orthodoxy. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons, in case your theology is not very good, I want you to know that the demons are not the good guys in the Bible, okay? The demons also believe and shudder. Here James is bringing scriptural proof to his thesis about spurious faith. You believe that God is one. Where does that come from? That's scripture. That comes from the great declaration that the, the Jews, the Israelites were to have. Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and your might. Israel was to listen to and know that Yahweh was their God and that Yahweh was one. Actually, that word in Hebrew for one doesn't mean numerical one, like one, two, three. It means one as in a unified one, ichad. 
It's not a bald numerical designation. It's talking about God as eternally unified. That word doesn't teach the Trinity, but it leaves the door open for further progress of revelation when the Trinity would be more closely taught. The oneness of God, though, is very clearly taught in the Old Testament. One sample, Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. The oneness of God is echoed in the New Testament just as clearly, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So monotheism is scriptural. Monotheism is thoroughly taught in scripture. James presents it here as true, even confessional. You do well. This is commendable to be believed. But lest the reader rest on his orthodox and monotheistic laurels, James amazingly brings up the fact that the wicked, disobedient, lying demons get that right also. In fact, the demons do two things. It says they also believe, that's their intellectual agreement, that there is only one supreme God in the universe. I like Douglas Moo's quote. He says, the demons are among the most orthodox of theologians. Wow. Wow. Demons, fallen angels, these wicked spirits, though they lie to men and they introduce the worst kind of heresies among men, they know themselves there's only one true eternal God. None of the demons are really polytheistic or pantheistic or atheistic. They're monotheists and they hate it. They're trying to overthrow it. Satan said, I want to, I'm going to, I can be like God. I can run this universe thing. Worship me, follow me. He was so audacious, he tried to turn the son of God into the antichrist himself when he told Christ, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these things that God said he was going to give to you. This is a proud guy, but he knows the truth. And they saw him, they saw this one true God sitting on his throne before they fell from their standing in heaven. But, and this is a big but, their response to God is not obedience, right? Their response to God is not worship. It's not adoration. Oh, the wonderful one God. It's not excitement. They're not excited. What is their response to there is one God? Their response is to what? To frizzo. That's the Greek word. They frizzo. They bristle. They tremble. They're struck with fear at the thought of what God is going to do to them in the future. That even happened when demons met the divine son of God and they immediately perceived what the human beings couldn't. I mean, these spiritual beings were on top of things. Jesus crosses the uh, Sea of Galilee, comes to the side where the Gadarene demoniac is, who's been, he's naked and he's running around beating people up and all that. And what does that demon do? He comes running, he falls down before Christ, says, I know who you are. I know who you are. You're the Holy Son of God. And he's so trembling of the power of the Son of God, they beg, because there was a legion of demons, to be thrown into the what? The swine. They'd rather go in the swine than they would for Christ to exercise his divine authority and cast them into the abyss. They bristled before Christ because he's God. By the way, in, in Acts 19, there's a guy trying to do exorcism, you know? And the demon talks to him and says, I know who Christ is, and I know who Paul is. They have divine authorities, but who are you? <laughs> and he beats up all seven of these guys, throws them out of the house naked. 
And by the way, before you engage in demon exercise ministry, you better read that passage and understand that one very carefully. <laughs> Who are you? Some people today think they have the authority of apostles. Uh-uh. No, you do not. They had no fear of those exorcists. And why should they? So what does all this mean for the churchgoer who professes faith? Well, the pulpit commentary says, should he have been resting satisfied with the thought that living in the midst of polytheism, he was holding fast by the Hebrew doctrine of the unity of God. This verse would remind him of the profitlessness of such a conviction unless it expanded into the blossoms and fruits of holiness. Being a merely intellectual credence, it could not cleanse the soul. It could only produce the fear which hath punishment. End quote. Oh, brothers and sisters, do not think that you can rest assured on your orthodoxy because you come to a church where there is expository preaching and good doctrine, that you have all of that right. You got 10 out of 10 on your FOF quiz. You can talk theology with the best of them. You have to evaluate your heart. This is personal. You have to evaluate your heart. Are you changed? Do you love Christ? Do you love the people Christ loved? And ninth, I got to give it quickly. Verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Here James just lowers the boom on the passage. Here's this foolish fellow who keeps insisting that faith without works is okay. No, you're foolish. This doesn't mean he's silly. Foolish in the biblical sense means um, he is making a ruin of his life. See, to be a fool in the biblical sense is to make decisions that are right in your own eyes. Okay, young people listening, you haven't fallen asleep on me yet? A foolish person is a decision that is right on in their own eyes. I like my decision. I think I'm right. I don't need a teacher. I don't need you to tell me. I already know. That's a fool. Because then the consequences of it destroy you. They lead to, to certain things that bring you down. And that's what James is trying to prevent here. Oh, you foolish fellow, aren't you willing to recognize that faith without works is useless? Here, he's asking what Spurgeon asked. Your repentance needs to be repented of. This is the time where I'm asking you right now, if you think you have a dead faith, you need to repent of that faith. You don't have a real faith. You need to turn from that. You need to turn from a dead faith. You need to humble your heart. You need to ask God to change you give you genuine saving faith that warms your heart for other people and for the holy things of God. And love and holiness are not opposite. It's always a holy love. We don't love people with the crass, deceptive kind of love that's out there that says everyone is fine and okay. They get to practice whatever sin they want to. That is not love. That is deception and that is hate ultimately. It leads people to destruction. That is not Christianity. That is not holy love. Holy love is we do what is actually best for the person, bringing them truth, is that in your heart? If it's not, you need to repent of that. You need to realize you're not yet saved. I don't, I don't care how long you've been in the church. I don't care what background you have with church. I don't care what denomination you come from. James doesn't care. Evaluate your heart. Do you have a life-transforming faith or not? If you don't, I think it's pretty clear a dead faith won't save you. It's not a place to rest it's not a place you're, you're going to be able to bring that before God and God is going to be impressed. Oh, I see that you asked Jesus into your heart and you're saved. You asked Jesus in your heart, he has to come in and rule and change and you have to begin to see that. Now, to those of you that are actually saved and a little bit scared right now, I want to add this addendum right here. Some of you have sensitive consciences and I know that. Ask around if people have seen whether or not they've seen in your life the changes that you're hoping that are there. Ask them if they're all affirming yes then you have too sensitive of a conscience. 
and you need to pay attention to what actually is being wrought in your own heart. But some of you are stubborn and hard in your head, and so you need a whap on the head every once in a while. And so this is for you. Make sure, evaluate yourself that you are genuinely saved. Better to do it now, a little bit of shame, a little bit of embarrassment, than to have eternal shame and to slip off in the darkness into the black of night for eternity. Never, ever, ever to be accepted by God. What a terrible thing. Don't you agree? In today's message, Pastor Tom taught on obedience and how the best way to be obedient to Christ is to love as he loved. And the best way to love as Jesus loved is to live out an active faith. Pastor Tom also reminded you today that your faith becomes alive and active when you put your hope in the Lord. And when your hope is in Him, you're able to spill out love to those around you. For when God is present, so is love. For God is love. I am so glad you joined me today to dig deeper into God's Word. Before we share what's coming up next time, I'd like to give you the opportunity to join us in sharing the gospel message here at Discover Hope. Would you prayerfully consider becoming a financial partner of this ministry? We're a listener-supported radio program, and all gifts are very appreciated. You can get all the information and donate online by visiting hopebible.org radio. That's hopebible.org radio. Next time on Discover Hope, Pastor Tom will walk you through what it means to live as Christ lived. You'll learn that to live like Christ is to not only have a faith like He did, but also to live out that faith. Pastor Tom will emphasize how faith and works work together, for works without faith is dead, and faith without works is also dead. But work done out of faith is genuine in the eyes of God. There's much more to learn from the book of James, so we hope you'll tune in again next time. If you'd like to listen again to today's teaching or share it with friends and family, you'll find it online at hopebible.org. Thanks for joining us on Discover Hope.